Hey everybody, it's Lon Seib and it's time once again for your weekly wrap up. And this week we're going to continue our Mars discussion for one more episode because I've got a great interview with the manager of the Mars Relay Network, the guy that's tasked with getting all the data back from Mars. It's going to be a lot of fun, so let's get to it. Now, the person we're about to hear from is Roy Gladden. He is the manager of the Mars Relay Network at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. His job is to get signals from the surface of Mars through one of these five satellites that you can see on screen back to us here on Earth. I recorded the interview with him last week in preparation for this week's wrap-up. And without further ado, let's get to it. All right, joining me now from California is Roy Gladden, who is the Mars Relay Network Manager at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, Roy, thank you very much for joining us today. This is great to have you on. We just talked a little bit about the Relay Network as I understood it last week, but I think you will have much better insights because you actually operate it uh, over there. So first of all, it, it looks like you're, you're operating the Relay Network from your house, like many of us are doing right now. So you're actually working <laughs> from home? Yeah, that's right. We've been home almost a year now, ever since the, the shutdown happened in March of last year. So yeah, almost a year. Uh, but yeah, most of us that are actually working on the operational missions at Mars are working from home. So uh, pretty much everybody that doesn't require hands-on hardware at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory are able to work from home. And so uh, that's what we've been doing. Almost all of the teams that are operating the orbiters at Mars and the rovers from Mars, uh, all of them are working from home. So it, it's... Uh, it's been an interesting time, an interesting uh, transition for us to get into that, into that way of doing business. But uh, you know, it, we made it work. We made and it work. I guess you could you could argue that it was all remote anyhow, right? So it's just a matter <laughs> of where you could set up. Or, or I'm guessing there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of right. complexities there, right? Well, and that's true. And for many of our project teams, they have uh, they have people that work on the missions that are at their home institutions, whether it's at a university someplace, or uh, in my case, I work a lot with with our uh, colleagues from the European Space Agency in Germany. So. Uh, much of what I do is online anyways or just on the phone. So it wasn't a big leap to make the transition to working from home uh, for now. now. Now tell me about the Relay Network. So as I understand it, we've got five orbiters around Mars right now. Um, obviously not as many as, as Elon Musk has with Starlink around <laughs> uh, the Earth here at the moment. So, um, yeah. we, so we've got five in orbit. We've got three uh, landers on the ground communicating. Um, how does it all work from a you know, top level? Most of the commanding to the rovers and the lander on Mars are done directly from Earth. So, so every day the, the spacecraft will point what they call their, their high-gain antenna. It's just a small dish about this big. Mm -hmm. And they'll point it to Earth and they'll listen to a signal from the deep space network. So most of that commanding is done every day, uh, one time a day in the morning uh, uh, on Mars. And, uh, and that's how they get their commanding in. But getting back the, the data that the rover and the lander itself have collected, all, almost all of that exclusively comes through the orbiters that are orbiting Mars right now. So in, in this past week, of course, we were super excited to see the Perseverance rover get delivered safely to Mars. That was a wonderful thing that happened. And, and, it's, and it's, from the outside world, it's looked great because all the pictures are coming in. Uh, actually, we're moving a lot more data than anybody expected. So everybody was very excited to see some of the the video of the entry, descent, and landing, which was very exciting to see, even from, from us uh, at JPL, the, the nerds and the engineers that are involved. <laughs> we were just as excited as everybody else, cheering and, and just loved the whole thing. But all of the data that got, does come back, all of that, all the pictures and the science instruments uh, data, all of that comes through, uh, is transmitted from the, the rover on the surface of Mars to the 
orbiters that we have, and then that gets relayed to uh, back to Earth, and, and it, there's a lot of different antennas on Earth that, that catch that data before it's delivered to the rover team on the ground. And what, why is the orbiter the better way to do it? Is it, is it because of proximity to the rover and, and the better signal that it might have being in space versus on the surface? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, one of the, the reasons why we use orbiters instead of trying to do it directly from the, from the rover is because you just don't want to carry that, the hardware that the rover would need in order to, to amp up a, the signal strength to transmit directly to Earth. So the rover carries a very small antenna. It's, it's very lightweight, uh, very low power. And, and the orbiters, they all tend to carry very large antennas, very large dishes that they can use to transmit directly back to Earth, the largest of which is actually on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's a three-meter dish, uh, the largest one we have at Mars, and it can achieve rates back to Earth up to six megabits per second, oh, which, is, wow. uh, which is you know, a pretty high data rate when you're talking about between Mars and right. Earth. And of course, that rate is only achievable when, uh, when the two planets are closest together. Um, but at those rates, you can move a lot more data from the orbiters back to Earth just because of the fact that they carry the much larger antenna payloads. And, and the MRO has been up there for a while, right? Since like 2006, is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It got into orbit in 2006. Yes. So is there any concern that it might be getting a little long in the tooth? <laughs> Indeed, there is a lot of concern. Uh, well, the oldest in the network is actually the Mars Odyssey orbiter. Right. Uh, that was uh, launched in 2001, arrived in early 2002. And, and it's still going strong. It's been doing very well for us. We don't know how many more years it has left ahead of it, but you know we're hopeful that it will, it will never die. Of course, that's not the reality of life, um, but it's, uh, it should survive a, a few more years. But between, um, between uh, Odyssey all the way, you know, it's almost 20 years old, right. uh, MRO over 15 years old, um, and then uh, uh, even MAVEN and, and the Trace Gas Orbiter from the European Space Agency, they're not the youngest spacecraft either. So there is some concern. So there's a lot of uh, talk right now at NASA headquarters about trying to send other spacecraft to to fill this this function of doing a relay, and uh, but all of it's it's just it's it's talk right now that hasn't been transmitted really into uh, into development at this point in time. Now I'm guessing that the you know your 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 the time that you have in which to transmit things is is probably a scarce resource because you've got these orbiters are not just there to service the ground uh, missions right they've got their own missions. Um, so I'm looking at, you know, just, just the, the NASA Eyes uh, website of, and, and seeing how things orbit. And, and there's only a certain amount of time that the, the orbiting satellite's going to be in range of something on the ground. Uh, you've got two, two things on the ground close to each other. Um, so you have to schedule all this stuff, right? This is not just like, hey, I'll descend it whenever I want. You have to schedule <laughs> time right. on, on everything, right? The satellite, the lander, the D DSN, what goes into the scheduling and the complexities of that? <laughs> yeah, it is a very convoluted uh, and complex process. Um, each piece of the puzzle has to be carefully scheduled. Uh, typically, the scheduling of the ground antennas uh, in, the, in the DSN are done first. Um, of course, for the trace gas orbiter, they also use ground stations that are part of their S-Track network. And, uh, and also a couple of Russian ground stations. And, and so, um, so all of this data can come down through, through assets that are scattered around the world, different antennas around the world. And scheduling those antennas, that's the first piece of the puzzle. And once we understand how much time each of the orbiter can talk to the ground stations on Earth, then we can kind of scale how much data we think we can get through uh, for the purposes of the orbiter mission. Uh, and the orbiter mission, um, all of the orbiters are, are first and foremost science orbiters. Their intention is to, to is to perform their own science data collection, to do their own investigations, 
and uh, and the relay function that they that they perform uh, is necessarily a secondary uh, capability. But of course, that's not what the rover teams want to hear. They want the orbiters to be <laughs> in service, data. ready to go all the time. <laughs> right. The good news, though, is that again, the orbiters have so much capacity for transmitting data back to Earth that that the that the amount of data that the rovers can provide is really just a small drop in the bucket compared to what the orbiters can provide. So. Uh, so scheduling the time with the between the rovers and the orbiters also has to be done very carefully. We spend a lot of time trying to understand uh, when the data from the rover will be back on the ground again, because for our rovers and landers, we have a tendency to want to command on the next day. Mm -hmm. So we need to know when is the data going to be here so that we can make sure that people are in the room at the right time to see that data, to know what the situation is on the ground so that they can plan the activities for the next day. And, and that, that turnaround process is one that we spend a lot of money on to make sure we get it right because you know, we don't know how long these rovers are gonna live on Mars. So every day is a precious gift and we wanna make sure that we use them uh, to the best of our ability. Have you been able to speed things up since, you know, because obviously you're learning probably something new every day. We have, a, we have new hardware now on the ground. Is there, is there something new in, in Perseverance that, that was gleaned from what you've learned prior with the other missions? <laughs> Surprisingly, no. Really <laughs> there's interesting. Not, there's really not new technologies. The mm -hmm. the radios that are on the on the Perseverance rover are the same radios that are on the Curiosity rover. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so we did that in order to to conserve cost. You know, we didn't have the ability to uh, to spend a lot of money on upgrading those systems. In addition, even if we were to do so, the orbiter systems are already in place, and they can only do so much. And so those systems are, are, are developed and designed and, they, and they, they cannot be upgraded, of course, because nobody's there to pull out one piece of hardware and put in another one. Right. So, uh, so those systems are what they are. So with, uh, with regards to trying to improve the capabilities, uh, the only thing that we have done recently to try to improve how much data throughput we can get is to implement a new encoding scheme. Actually, it's not a new one. It's very old. It's called the Low Density Parity Check. And we have implemented this new capability on the MAVEN orbiter and will soon do so on the trace gas orbiter as well, uh, hopefully by the end of this calendar year. And, uh, and that will allow us to bump up the data throughput by roughly somewhere between 20 and 30%, which will be really great to see. Wow, so, and that's just through timings um, and software changes? It's, it's, uh... Yeah, it's just how, how, the how the data is packaged hmm. and transmitted across the line. It just gives it, it's just more efficient. <clears throat> Excuse me. No problem. It's just more efficient. So. Yeah, so the uh, so with uh, the low density parity check, it's a much more efficient encoding scheme uh, that that uh, that allows us to move more data in, on the same on the same bandwidth and the same signal, and uh, and so we're excited to see that come into play in the right. in the months to come. Now, one of the things that I, I read in the, in the lead up to the Perseverance landing was that the your team created something called a bent pipe. At least that was what was on the website to <laughs> to try right. to get more data through. So the bent pipe. Um, first of all, describe it, but I'm, but I'm understanding that there is more data now being transmitted throughout the, the entry, descent, and landing process than you had before. The rover transmitted the data at 8 kilobits per second. Okay. And, uh, and so how that data is received uh, by the orbiters is, is, a, is a very interesting story, but too long for this discussion today. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was indeed configured to catch those bits as they were just transmitted into the blind by the rover. Uh, to catch those bits and then to immediately turn around and transmit those bits back to Earth uh, so it could be received in the, in the mission support area. And so during the coverage that we saw of the Perseverance landing and that you, you watch the TV and they had people sitting there and they're watching the telemetries and the screen, uh, that data was not received directly from the rover. It was transmitted from the rover 
was captured by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, packaged up in small little in small little packets of information, and then transmitted back to Earth, and then decoming, uh, and then taken apart on Earth, and then and flowed into the into the into the Perseverance Mission Operations Center. And, and so that whole chain of events from the outside user that's just watching TV, they don't see any of that. Right. It's just this beautiful thing that just happens where the data's there and yay, we can <laughs> see how high it is above the ground and oh, the parachute deployed. But behind the scenes, there's all of these things happening. Uh, it's just ticking off one at a time to make sure that the, that the data makes it through. And so it was a really great triumph, I believe, on the part of the teams that, that, that had a part of, uh, in this to make that happen. Now, to be clear that this capability isn't, isn't new, actually, um, uh, the way we did it on, on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was new, but we have done bent pipe capabilities in the past with the Odyssey Orbiter. The Odyssey Orbiter can do that and has done that in previous um, entry, descent, and landings from other missions. And so, um, uh, but the way that it was implemented was different on Odyssey uh, as compared to the way it was on MRO. So it was a new key capability for MRO, uh, but, uh, but not a new capability overall as far as what we were able to achieve in these regards. And so the rover is just kind of, like you said, blasting out a signal. It's not being directed like it might be through the ground mission. So it, it, it's, pick, it's looking for this signal. It's picking it up and, and shooting it back. And you said uh, eight, right. eight, K by, 8K bytes or 8K bits? Yeah, 8 kilobits per second. So, so that, was the data rate. So that's so, a pretty slow dial-up connection, basically, right? <laughs> that's right. So everything though. we saw. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so actually, MRO wasn't the only one recording those bits. Uh, the, the, the MAVEN orbiter was also listening. And unlike uh, MRO, where it was trying to catch the bits and interpret the bits and then package them up and send them back to Earth right away, MAVEN was recording the, the signal in, in what we call an open-loop recording where it was catching not just the bits, but also the kind of the spectrum around it. And from that extra data, we were able to determine uh, Doppler information and, and a bunch of radiometric um, uh, INQ for the radio geeks out there, uh, INQ data from that. And so that set of information also allowed us to, uh, to do some reconstruction after the fact. And the reason why it was so important for us to catch this data, because you can imagine um, what would happen if it reached the ground and we didn't know anything. Right. If the the rover transmits what uh, what it's told is the most critical pieces of information, so that if there is a very hard landing, we can go back and try to re reconstruct what went wrong to figure this out. And this was a, a lesson learned from uh, from way back with the Mars 98 failures. When the Mars Polar Lander uh, crash landed on Mars, we had nothing. There was no recording of that telemetry, and so it took a lot of effort mm -hmm. to try to tease out what we think what uh, went wrong. And, uh, and ever since then, we've always had this mandate that, that no matter what lander we're sending to Mars, we need to make sure we have an, a, a way to record its, its telemetry as it's, as it's entering and, and descending and landing so that if something does go wrong, we know what to do, uh, or rather not what to do, but what went wrong so we can avoid that mistake in the future. Right, those are painful and expensive mistakes too, I'm sure when they happen, so we don't want that <laughs> That's happening. Right. Now, now the, the um, and, I, and I guess too, the timing of all this has to be really precise because that orbiter has to be in the right spot when the rover arrives, right? I mean, this is, this is a That's lot right. of, of planning. So I'm, I'm guessing this is something yeah. that the whole team, obviously the whole team does it, but, but still it's just remarkable um, that you can, you can yeah. get all that. And that actually to, is to a multi-year process because mm. the, um, even before, before launch, the, the rover team had to tell the orbiters where they want them to be. 
because uh, the or orbiters just don't have enough fuel to just you know, crank over to the side and burn a bunch of fuel in order to right. position themselves properly. So it's a very slow process where they may do a tiny maneuver, maneuver now that will allow them to, the orbit to move around just a, enough to be in position so that the recording can be done. And that's done over the course of years. It takes a, wow. lot, of, a lot of time to allow that because we just don't have the fuel on board to do any dramatic maneuvers. So when you so, hear launch windows, uh, that's, what, that's what it's about, right? Is, make, is, is the timing from it, when it leaves Earth is really important for when it, I'm guessing, arrives, right? Yeah, that's right. And, that, and the reason, uh, one of the reasons why, uh, why they designed the mission so that regardless of what day they launch, they always land on the same day is for this very purpose. So when Perseverance launched, it, it launched like three, you know, or a couple of weeks after its first uh, opportunity to launch. So there were, there were some problems in the pad. Right. Uh, and so they weren't able to launch on the first day. And it took a couple of weeks to figure things out. And so it, it finally got off the ground. But its arrival date at Mars never changed, even though they had that delay in the launch. So they, uh, they designed it that way on purpose, partially because of this, this dance we have to do with the orbiters to make sure that they are there uh, to record the signal during landing. Hmm. Now, one, one thing I had to ask you, because my viewers were asking about this. Now, I, I thought it was amazing to be able to see the data coming down in real time, you know, through the bent pipe and see, you know, the entire mission arrive safely and, and see everyone celebrating. Yeah. I had viewers, though, and, and it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, why can't we see live video? We've got this data pipe going on here. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we talked a little bit about the bandwidth involved, right? Is there, do you think there's ever going to be a time in which you could speed that up and, and provide visual uh, imagery in addition to the data that's coming down? Or do you think it's just not... Not doable given the laws uh, of physics. You know, it's it's really the physics problem, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, Mars is a long ways away, and in order to to increase the amount of data that we have that that we can get back at, at a time, we need bigger antennas, bigger, more powerful antennas to transmit that. And right now, it's very difficult to deliver a, a spacecraft safely to Mars, and so uh, that game is changing. Hopefully, with all the work that's being done by SpaceX and some other companies, where hopefully we'll be able to see much larger payloads being delivered. But to date, we've only been able to, to, to deliver uh, spacecraft that are relatively small compared to, uh, compared to um, you know, what we would like to see, what we, what we do see around Earth with these ginormous spacecraft that, right. that have huge antennas on the top and, and they waste a lot of power uh, not pointing their antennas. They, they spend a lot of power using what they call a, um, uh, a phased array. Uh, mm -hmm. where they actually just have a grid of antennas and, and electronically they steer the, the beam to go to different places. That takes a lot of power. And at Mars, we just don't have that kind of power. We don't have, this, we don't have the mass for, the, for that kind of a radio. Uh, and so we have to make some decisions about what we can do. And usually that means that, that we will size the, the telecom payload to be exactly what we think we need it to be to support the mission that's there and not a whole lot more than that. So, uh, so someday I'm, I'm with you and I'm with your community of, of, <laughs> of listeners that I would love to see the high definition video come back, you know, as uh, in that very moment. Uh, what we saw with the video after landing was, was a step in that direction where at least now uh, that video was actually captured and that was the first time that we'd ever had video from the, from the back show looking down, from the rover looking up. It was the first time we've ever done that. And, uh, and it was kind of an experiment to see if we could. Um, but, uh, but now that it's been done, I'm, I'm certain we'll continue to do that going into the yeah. future because how can you argue against that footage? <laughs> right. And the expectation is there. And it was actually interesting to hear right. at the press conference the other day that there was, a, there was actually some useful engineering and science that came out of that also, right? They, they mm -hmm. called it a nice to have, right. right? But it, 
they, they gleaned a lot from it. So, um, you know, based on how the, you're looking at how the, the parachute deployed, um, I think they mentioned at one point there was a spring hanging off the heat shield that they weren't expecting. So all sorts of little right. things there. And I guess it took the better part of a weekend though to get all that data down. It wasn't just uh, clicking on the <laughs> website. Right. So, yeah. And in fact, that's not even all of it. There's there's more to come. And oh. and so uh, there's quite a bit of backlog of the high rate uh, data and the imagery that's, that's still on the rover that we'll be returning over, over the next couple of weeks. So it's going to take some time to get all of that that data set back. And that's okay. You know, we're proceeding with the mission. Uh, it was a huge data set, and we're still excited to see what comes next. You know, <laughs> I, right. no, I don't even exactly. know what's actually on there still to come. <laughs> right. It's kind of that's the fun part. And I guess a lot of stuff just kind of stays on there until you know the higher priority data comes out, and then you can go back and get some yeah. of the other stuff out too. So it's it's a, it's all yeah, scarcity, right? right? It's just it's just juggling all of that. Now that the rover's on the ground, the the priority is is in starting the mission, getting the mission going, so that uh, you know it can start moving, get get on the road, to go find those samples that we want to collect. And that's really the priority here. So getting this, this extra data back, it, it is, it's, uh, it's important, yes, but the mission is to get those samples. And so that's what we're, we're, we're trying to focus on now. And the good part about the relay network is that it has been overperforming uh, as far as what we expected it to do for, for moving data back from, from Mars. And so a lot of these pictures we didn't anticipate having so early, but because the network's been performing so very well with a, a more throughput than we anticipated, uh, it just means that, that we're able to get that data back faster so we can see it. And, and that's really exciting for us to go forward with. And right now Mars is kind of far away, right? So this is at a period of time where you would expect less bandwidth from the MRO and others, right? That's right, yeah. And it's about 12 minutes away right now, um, 12 and a half, something like that. I can't so, believe the swing uh, that, that, that you go through. It goes from like 12 minutes to five minutes, depending on the time of... of... From 20 minutes to five minutes. Oh, yeah. really? So, wow. Yeah, so it's it uh, depending upon the alignment of the planets. That's the way it is. Uh, when Mars is on the other side of the sun, um, it's uh, it can take a long time, and the bandwidth at that point has to drop for all of the orbiters. So, truly, when it comes to moving data here, uh, from uh, back and forth between Earth and Mars, really the throttling point is that connection between Mars itself and Earth. Uh, and so, as we look at at instantiating a new network in over the next decade that will support additional robotic missions and even start laying the groundwork for supporting human missions. Uh, addressing that, that, uh, that long leg between Earth and Mars, that's the biggest challenge. And that is the thing that throttles us the most and what prohibits getting that, that high def video of the landing events, right. that's what stops that from happening. We need, we need uh, Captain McCard and some subspace communicators to, uh, <laughs> to make it better. <laughs> and let me ask you this, if you, if you were asking me this question, which I thought was a, was a good one too, um, is there some kind of authentication? You know, what, what prevents some mad scientist from putting a big antenna up in his backyard and start you know, sending data to the, to the rovers and back? Is there, <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing there's some, there's some security here? Uh, all of the vehicles are designed to throw away anything that it doesn't understand. So if something, if a signal comes in that it doesn't know what to do with, then it would toss it. Of course, uh, sending a signal that far, it's hard to do, you know, and mm. it has to be the right, at the right frequency, at the right signal strength in order for the, for the spacecraft to understand it. Uh, at, at this moment in time, there is not a directive by the United States government to encrypt data to deep space missions. Mars is considered a deep space mission. Uh, those rules are changing though, and we anticipate in the next decade that that will, that that will be different. And we will, need to, uh, we will need to encrypt the data as we go across the line from Earth to Mars. And that encryption uh, uh, is actually part of new new protocols and new standards that are being developed, uh, but they've not they have not yet been implemented at Mars. Mm. So the the funny thing about this is that is that we don't have a lot of insight into what the Chinese are doing. 
Mm. Um, but amateur astronomers on Earth have been doing exactly what you suggested from the listening viewpoint, where they right. put an antenna out, they're listening for the signal, and they're taking mm. it apart bit by bit to understand mm. what, what, the, what the Chinese spacecraft is doing. Right. And they're trying to tease through it. So it's very exciting to see you know, anim amateur astronomers get into that kind of thing and, and to understand what's happening. The, the commanding, uh, you know, commanding from here to Earth, that's the harder problem. Listening mm. is relatively easy. Commanding right. is hard. So uh, right now, it's just it's difficult to do that kind of thing. Uh, but gratefully, we haven't had any bad actors that have the ability to stick a 34-meter dish in their backyard, <laughs> right. you know, to send to send a signal to try to to uh, to mess up our spacecraft at Mars. Well, that's fascinating. I had no idea. And, I, and, I, and as you said earlier, the, the relay network is really from Mars to Earth, and nothing really goes through the relay network back down. Is that is that right? We can command through the orbiters as well. In fact, at this moment in time, actually, right right today and, and through this weekend, there will be a whole bunch of commands that will be sent to the rover through the orbiters that will instantiate some new flight software on the rover to operate the, the science instruments that are on the rover. So we're excited to see that happen. Uh, those, those large command products, again, it's just more efficient to send them through the orbiters than it is to try to do it from the ground. Because if you try to send very large data products to the ground, uh, it would take a long time. And you, we right. just can't tie up the rover, you know, pointing an antenna at Earth all that time. So again, doing it through the orbiters is just a better way to do it. And that's, that's one of the strengths of the Mars Relay Network. So it's faster in both directions, excellent. So let me ask yeah, you this about right. the future. What's, uh, what are you excited about? I mean, these, these orbiters are getting, like I said, a little old. Is there, is there more plan yeah, to, to head out true. there to, to, to fill in the gaps? <laughs> well, I can only speak to, to what has been publicly released. Uh, uh, sample return is, is really the big exciting thing that NASA is looking forward to when it comes to Mars exploration. Perseverance is the first leg of that. It'll be, cap it'll be going and collecting rock samples uh, and putting them inside the little canisters. Uh, in 2026, we'll be sending an, an, uh, another rover that'll be fast. Uh, it'll, and it'll run across, run across the, the surface of Mars at a whole whopping like 10 miles per hour. It'll be wow. great. That's uh, like a tenfold faster. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really fast. To go fetch those samples and return them to a lander that will be able to launch those up into Mars orbit and then we'll bring that home. Uh, and roughly around 2028, 20, is when, the, is when the, the samples will be returned. In addition to the sample return campaign, which is fully an engineering exercise, it is not a science mission, um, the, we have the Mars Ice Mapper that's on the books. And the Mars Ice Mapper is an international collaboration between uh, the Canadians and the, and the Italians and, the, and the, the Japanese. And so a lot of people are very interested in sending this new mission that will look to see where the water is on the surface of Mars that people can get to without a lot of work. So we're looking for very shallow water deposits so we can figure out where to send the people. You know, we want to mm. we want to know where to go. So that mission will launch probably in 2028. Uh, and, and that mission is uh, at this moment in time designed to rely upon a relay network for getting its its flood of data back. And so, uh, as we know, the, the existing Mars Relay Network is getting long in the tooth. And so, uh, so we will need additional spacecraft to be sent to Mars that will function as a relay network. And at this moment in time, the thought is that those will be dedicated relay spacecraft. They will not be oh, science cool. missions with relay, but they will be relay uh, centric and be able to provide that service, not just to the ice mapper mission, but to other robotic missions that we would like to see uh, come to pass as well. You can see inch by so, inch the, the human invasion of Mars is, <laughs> right? Our, our hardware right. is more that's plentiful. Right. And... 
<laughs> and there's so many open questions. I mean, uh, this is at least what's on the books for NASA and what our intentions are. We know that the, that the Chinese are very excited about what they're doing. And of course, they just had a successful entry into Mars orbit as well. UAE is a part of that. The Indians are planning another mission in 2024. The Japanese have missions planned for 22 and 24 that are on the books. And so there'll be a lot of excitement at, at Mars. Um, uh, none of those latter ones are going to use the Mars Relay Network. It's just, you know, it's only NASA and ESA at this moment right. in time. Uh, but, uh, but, and that's just the robotic missions. Now, once we start talking about sending people, of course, there's a lot of work being done by SpaceX to try to send people there. Uh, and of course, other, other, uh, private industries are interested in doing that too. And so if, uh, if, if things go according to their plans, it will be truly game changing and we'll see a lot of exciting things happening at Mars. So that'll be great to see. Well, this is exciting stuff, and I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your very busy day, both with this mission and the future <laughs> ones, to uh, connect with the audience. There's been a lot of viewer interest in this. We've been talking a lot about bandwidth here on the channel, just locally <laughs> on the ground. So to appreciate how much you can get from Mars is, uh, is, is pretty amazing. So uh, thank you for all that you've been doing there. You've been doing this for a while, right? Uh, I've actually been with JPL since 1999. I started wow. with the Odyssey project originally in 2001. Uh, right at launch is when I joined that. And then I, I spent some time on the Mars on uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers, and then I, I spent a lot of time with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, before moving to what we call the Mars Program Office, which is the parent organization that, uh, that uh, manages all, the, all of NASA's Mars assets uh, with, um, uh, with the exception of the sample return elements. And so, uh, so yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. In fact, back in 2003, when the, when the Mars Exploration Rovers got to Mars, um, nobody knew how to do relay. It hadn't been done since Viking, you know, many years before right. then. And none of the people that were involved in Viking were involved in trying to figure out how to do this for the, for the, for Spirit and Opportunity. Hmm. So we kind of made it up as we went along and wow. and tried to to make this network uh, function, even though, as I said before, none of the orbiters were designed principally to do relay. So it's it's been it's been a real challenge over the years to make that happen. And happily, we found ways to to. Uh, to make all of these square pegs fit in these round holes and vice versa. So it's been good work. I can tell you all of us uh, space nerds here love it. <laughs> so it's great stuff. <laughs> and before I let you go, if, if, uh, if a young person out there is watching, you know, there's so many different disciplines now that go into, into exploration. Um, what, what would you suggest for, for a young person that wants to get into, into what you do at, 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 at JPL? What, what should they think about doing both you know, in, in their high school education and beyond? Uh, well, of course, uh, students should always folk, you know, really think about being good at math. I mean, that's a really important thing to do. Uh, math and general science, for me, uh, my degrees are actually in mechanical engineering. Uh, most of my work was in aerospace, and, uh, in aerospace work. Um, I did a lot of spacecraft design when I was a, even in, uh, a graduate student. So we worked with, um, with designing some spacecraft buses. Uh, in my case, uh, really, frankly, the things that have been the most helpful for me is knowing how to program. To be perfectly honest, uh, just being being conversant in the language of what programming uh, is and, and how it works, um, that's very important. So between the math and the programming and the general understanding of science, um, that's uh, those are probably the biggest keys that help that helped me in the past to to be where I am today. So for a new person looking to come up, I would say that they should not. Uh, shy away from that programming class that they that they may not want to take because right. even even scientists anybody that works in the industry you know they problems are solved using computers and problems uh, and these computers are just faster and and more powerful than ever before and so we need uh, people who know uh, what they can do to get the most out of them that's what we're looking for. 
Great. Well, I appreciate your time again and, uh, from, from, and enjoy your, your, your time working on Mars from your home office. Pretty cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you. All right, I'm great. glad thank to be you. here today. Thanks, Ray. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So a big thank you to Roy for giving us so much of his time. He's very busy managing all of this stuff, and it was great to chat with him. I also want to thank the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory for setting up the interview. And I'll try to do some more of these things over the next couple of months because there's so many parts of the space program that we never hear about, but they're so interesting to me, especially how you get data back and forth. But there's a lot of other little things out there that I'm going to try to hunt down. Uh, So leave me some ideas down in the comment stream, and I'll try to get somebody on with us to talk about those items. And I have an additional thank you this week because so many of you helped elevate my pitch to go to space on Twitter. Uh, This is actually a real thing that's happening in the not-too-distant future. A man named Jared Isaacman bought a flight on a SpaceX Dragon uh, spacecraft, which is going to orbit the Earth for an undetermined length of time with four civilians on board. Uh, Jared's going to be one of them, but he opened up the other three seats for other civilians to join him. And one of those seats is being given away in a contest for small entrepreneurs to make their case as to why they should go. And I made that video last week. Some of you saw that. Many of you went on Twitter and retweeted the video to get it in front of the judges. And the contest entry period is over. It looks like there's less than 150 people that applied for this. So the odds are actually not bad. It's still a long shot, but it'd be really cool if it happened. And I want to thank you all for uh, retweeting that tweet. And you can still do it if you go to lon.tv slash space tweet. Um, but we'll be finding out probably in the next two weeks or so if I'm going to have a very different year ahead of me or not. So stay tuned. It'll be kind of fun if it happens. And if not, no big deal. We'll keep doing our thing here, and I'll keep covering space topics for those of you that are interested. And we're not done with the thank yous yet because we got a bunch of super chatters this week that I want to thank. Fernie Lopez, Joshua Cardona, Ken Driggers II, and Scott Lennox all contributed during a recent live stream that we did. And I also want to thank our newest supporters on the channel, including Jim Callagher, who's a new Gold Level contributor. Thank you very much, Jim. I also want to thank Damian Rickard and Vincent Barnes, who contributed via our donor box page. And we've got four new YouTube members this week, including M. Denise Akhtar, John Bo, Meritus Kababag, and KKDD. I want to thank everyone who contributed this week and everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis and all of you who watch on a regular basis too because all of those things equal channel growth. You can also contribute to the channel if you want by going to lon.tv support. That'll give you the full range of options that you have available to you on my donor box page. We also support the YouTube membership program and of course Floatplane now too. So whatever works for you works for me. We have a number of other channels, including my podcast, if you want to catch this show in audio format. I've been hosting it on Anchor. It's been working out great, but you can download it pretty much on any podcatcher out there. And we're also on Spotify. And this show posts on the podcast on Wednesday mornings, so be on the lookout for that. 
We also have my email list, which I've been using a little bit more these days because I recently switched over to a self-hosted thing that's working out great. Uh, so if I've been emailing you too much, I apologize, but I wanted to uh, get the word out about some things we've been up to. We also have the Facebook group at lon.tv slash Facebook group. And then we've got the store where I sell previously used items. And you can get an alert whenever I update the store at lon.tv slash store alert. And the store is now on a new platform because part of the contest entry that I did required me to set up a store with the Shift for Shop platform. But it actually worked out great because it is free. It costs exactly what it costs me to self-host it, but I don't have to deal with it anymore. So it's up on there. You can still pay with PayPal, but also major credit cards too. And I think it supports things that my other store didn't support, like Apple Pay and a few other payment options. So have a look. There's not much on there at the moment, but if you sign up for the email list here at lon.tv slash store alert, we will let you know when new things are added to the store. That is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Let me know if you like these interviews that we do from time to time. They're a lot of fun for me to do, if nothing else. And definitely leave me feedback and ideas for what kind of interviews you'd like to see in the future if you do enjoy listening to me talk to other people. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Brian Parker, Jim Peter, Tom Albrecht, Frank Lewandowski, Mark Bollinger, and Chris Allegretta. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.